Welcome this week to the Summer Together podcast here at St. Paul's. I'm Tommy Williams, and I'm joining the time with Jack Levison this summer, who teaches Old Testament and uh, Hebrew at Southern Methodist University, Perkins School of Theology there, um, my home school. So uh, it's great to have Jack to share these um, times together and discussion. We, you know, we are, uh, didn't I say this? We are embarrassed of you. Yeah, as thanks. long as you know that. Yes, I do know that. Okay. I do know that they did pass me out of there. Uh, so, <laughs> um, I think you have a memorial brick in one of the bathrooms, don't you? <laughs> That's right. People step on it all the time. That's it, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, here we are walking our way through Genesis. And if you've been keeping track all the way through, you've um, been a part of the soap opera that is Genesis. Uh, but the message uh, throughout um, uh, Genesis and the ancestral stories from Abraham on through where we are now in Jacob. Um, So last week, if you were listening, Jacob and Esau have this uh, reconciliation moment, um, and we pick up this week in Genesis 37. So this coming Sunday, we'll be reading this, uh, parts of this this story in worship on Sunday. Genesis 37, Jacob uh, moves into the rest of his life, I guess. Jacob settles um, in the land where his father had lived as an alien, in the land of Canaan, and it begins to tell the story of Jacob and his family, Jacob and Jacob's many sons, um, including uh, the drama with brothers and Joseph, um, who is depicted here as Jacob's sort of favorite son, um, because Jacob was the one he had later. Jacob's the one that um, he had with Rachel, finally, after all that drama. Um, finally, he and Rachel were able to have a child together, a son in Joseph that he has in his old age. So he favors Joseph a bit. And uh, and then Joseph is fairly obnoxious, right, Jack? Yeah. So yeah, it says here in verse two, Joseph, being seventeen years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them of them to their father. So he snitches. He's a snitch. He's a snitch. <laughs> yeah. So he's a bit of a brown noser and a tattletale and. Uh, uh, so Joseph does not get in good graces and favor with servants, with brother, with family members, and even Joseph has these dreams. And these dreams are part of the little section that the lectionary does not actually include in the Sunday readings, but it's important for us understanding the story. So Joseph has these dreams, and to summarize the dreams, they are essentially where Joseph is the exalted figure in the dreams, And the brothers are subservient to him, worshiping Joseph, bowing down to Joseph. These these are the symbols in the story that essentially mean uh, Joseph wakes up from those dreams, uh, figures uh, he's got it made. Uh, Brothers are supposed to worship him, right? So um, he's 17. He's 17, right? I I think we're done with this podcast. (laughs) He's 17. Right. We understand 17. So, yep. So, uh, so he has these dreams, and then the, the lectionary picks back up with, uh, with the brothers, you know, sort of cavailing about in the fields, and Joseph around in the fields, keeping, keeping watch over the flock. By and night? What are we at, Jesus? <laughs> what are we at, the Christmas Different time? Joseph, yeah. <laughs> Different Joseph. Different Joseph. And they were sore afraid. <laughs> That's right. Well, Joseph gets... Uh, <laughs> Uh, Joseph he gets there. surprised. <laughs> right into Matthew. That's right, keeping watch over their flock by night. Uh, so, um, so their jealousy is overtaking them, Jack. Um, and they decide to, basically, they decide to get rid of Joseph. Um, and uh, 
they, uh, they go around and about about what they're going to do with their brother Joseph that they're jealous of, that they're mad at, that they're angry with. They're jealous of their father's favor on Joseph. So they go back and forth about what they're going to do. Um, and finally, one of the brothers, Reuben, uh, speaks up and uh, decide, helps them. Um, they were going to kill him. They decide not to kill Joseph. But instead, um, he's thrown down into this pit and eventually um, taken away into slavery. Mm-hmm. So you want to pick it up from there a bit? Uh, yeah, I mean, good summary. Um, basically, you know, in that second dream, in the first dream you have the sheaves bowing down to the sheaf. Uh, and so that's the brothers bowing down. But in the, in the next version, it's the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowing down. Right. And Jacob, even the father who loves Joseph, who's given Joseph a special coat, who has a special affection for Joseph, even Jacob rebukes him and says, you mean your mother and I and your brothers are going to bow down to you? And then, interesting, the brothers were jealous of him. Again, we have these inside views. The brothers were jealous of him, but the father, but his father Jacob kept the matter in mind. Mm. So Jacob knew there might be something here as despicable as it was to have this dream and say even your mother, the sun and the moon and the brothers are all going to bow, the stars are going to bow down. And so it's very understandable why they want to get rid of him. It makes you think about your parents, or maybe you as a parent, sort of thinking, I'm going to remember this, right? Keep it in mind. I'm going to keep it in mind, right? Keep it in mind. That time you did this. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's inform how I remember you next time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, oh. and when you mentioned Reuben, I love this little subplot, mm-hmm. that Reuben is the one person who doesn't want to go along with it. So, you know, Reuben... When Reuben heard they were going to kill him, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, let's not take his life, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him. And then there's a little dash, and there's a parenthesis, so that Reuben might rescue him out of their hand and restore him to his father. So you have one glimmer of grace in this terrible scene of fratricide and brother murder. Um, Reuben tries to save them. And he returns to the pit, and of course it's empty, and he thinks Joseph is dead, which Joseph is not. So you have to appreciate Reuben in this. You know, Jacob is not quick to condemn. He's bothered, but he holds it in mind. And Reuben, though he may hate Joseph, doesn't want to kill him. So there is this wonderful little subplot there. So Reuben goes back to the, to the pit and sees that Joseph is not there and then reports back to the brothers. Joseph's gone. He's not in the pit. Um, and now they, they so there's a cover-up here too because eventually Jacob finds out that the beloved son Joseph is gone and presumably dead. And so they, they do this cover-up with Joseph's coat and blood and that to try to say to father and to cover up their own deeds your beloved son Joseph is dead and the amazing thing about this is they really don't care about their father I mean they what, what struck, struck me as I read this is they don't give a rat's patootie about what their father's going to think when they come back with the coat with blood 
the father's going to be heartbroken. But they allow their jealousy for their brother to trump their love for their father. And that's what struck me about this whole thing, that Jacob, of course, Jacob is now being deceived. The deceiver once again becomes deceived. So he was deceived by Laban. He's deceived by his own son. So again, with a lot less humor this time, it comes to bite him. He is now the, the object of deception. And what's the result of that deception? Grief, loss, oh. sadness, tragedy. I mean, that's, that's where all this goes. Years of it. Years of it, yeah. I mean, Joseph will end up in prison for years. So, you know, though you don't hear about Jacob, except that there's a famine in the land, these are years of waking up having in your own mind lost your son, lost your son. And um, I, I, I don't know how to describe the years of that going on. So yeah. Now, I do have something funny, though, about right. this. So right. I, uh, I did my master's in England at Cambridge, and when you do your first year of Hebrew at Cambridge, the way they do it is they teach you the grammar, and then you have a set text, it's called. You have certain Hebrew text that you have to be able to translate from Hebrew to English. You have to be able to point. That's put the little vowels in it. And then you have to be able to translate from English back into Hebrew. It's really pretty tough. And this was our set text. Oh, okay. But it was Genesis 37 okay. and 40 to 45. All right. That is, 38 and 39 were left out. Now, when you look at it, 38 is about sex, and 39 is about sex. And so the Cambridge of old, which was mostly, you know, 18 to 22-year-old men, in the old days there weren't many female colleges at Cambridge, and most colleges weren't co-ed. My college, Christ College, went co-ed in 1978. By the class I went, we had the first woman at Christ College. And so it's interesting, whoever set these texts decided they would start with Genesis 37, leave out 38, leave out 39, and pick it up in 40, because 38 and 39 are both about sex. But... They're really important texts, as we've learned, when something gets inserted into a story. And 37 to 45 are the story of Joseph. When something gets inserted in 38 especially, although maybe it was 37 and 39 to 45, I, but it, I can't remember, but 38 is definitely left out. And you have to ask, why is this left out? Why is this interruption here? So, if you go to the end of chapter 37, which is where we are, right. we're left with, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Sold Joseph. In chapter 37, the last verse says, The Midianites sold Joseph. If you go to the first verse of 39, it picks up there. Now Joseph was taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. So 
all of 38 is a parenthesis. And when you have these parentheses stuck into a, an ongoing narrative that clearly interrupts it, you have to ask, what's the point? Right? We saw this with the latter dream. Right. Why is that it, inserted? Why is it inserted? We saw that with the uh, wrestling with the angel. Why is that inserted with, between Jacob's getting ready to meet Esau and Jacob's meeting Esau? And we saw the shift in Jacob from being behind everyone to going in front of everyone. Right. So why is this inserted? Well, Joseph does look like a little bit of a snitch and a daddy's boy and arrogant. He doesn't, he's not very likable in chapter 37, right? Right. He's not no. very likable. But Judah, who is the firstborn, is he not? Isn't Judah the oldest son? Yes. Judah is the right. firstborn. Yeah. Judah will feature in chapter 38. And in the parallel between Joseph and Judah... Judah comes off looking not very good. So here's the story in 38. I'll tell it very quickly. Notice, first of all, in verse 38, chapter 38, 1, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and settled near a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Notice what he does. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He married her and went into her. Now, what was the one thing all along from Abraham down was a concern about finding a wife? What should she not be? A Canaanite. Right. Don't marry a Canaanite. This is exactly what Judah does. He marries a Canaanite woman. He breaks what he's supposed to do, whereas Abraham wanted to send people all the way back to Haran to get someone who was not a Canaanite. That's, Judah doesn't care. And that's where Jacob settles, though, isn't it? In, yeah. In the land of Canaan. They're settled yeah. in the land of Canaan, but you're not supposed to marry a Canaanite. You've got to marry someone from your kindred. Right. Okay. So she has a son named Ur. She has another son named Onan. And then she has another, or maybe another son as well. But the point is, these sons marry a girl named Tamar, and each time they die. And we don't know why. I mean, this, this is a very kind of sexual thing, but she conceived and bore a son, and he na named him Ur. Again, she conceived and bore a son named Onan. Yet again, she bore a son and named him Shelah. Yeah, three sons. Now, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. So Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her. You're supposed to, you know, if, 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 if her husband dies, you take his place. And um, raise up offspring for your brother. But since Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, he spilled his semen on the ground whenever he went into his brother's wife so that he'd not give offspring to his brother. So Onan doesn't want to make her pregnant because it won't really be his son. It'll be his brother's, his dead brother's son. So what was, he did what was displeasing in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord put him to death also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, listen, I'm not giving you anybody else. All my sons are dying when they marry you. So stay a chaste daughter-in-law because he was afraid, so Samar went to live in her father's house. So I, this all sounds kind of cumbersome, but basically her husbands die, 
Judah's sons die, so Judah will not then give her a child in any way. He says, basically, stay in this house as a widow, and we will not give you any children. So in the course of time, Judah's wife dies, and he travels to a town, and Tamar hears that he's traveling there. She puts off her widow's outfit and dresses like a prostitute. Judah goes in. They have sex. She becomes pregnant. Judah comes back three months later and realizes he looks for the prostitute because he's given to her something in pledge. People say there's no prostitute. Prostitute, turns out, was his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And when she's pregnant, he says, stone her to death. She pulls out the pledge and says, the one who gave me this is the one who got me pregnant. It's her father-in-law. And Judah has to say, she's right, I'm wrong. She's the better one for this. Now, why is that stuck in the Joseph story? Why is that stuck in the Joseph story, story? Yeah, I'm not positive, but I think it's to show that even someone like the firstborn Judah, who has all the rights of Jacob, is able to do something wrong. First of all, he marries a Canaanite. Secondly, he refuses to give his daughter-in-law the third son for fear that that son will die. I mean, that's understandable, but that's the third son's responsibility. And then after his wife dies, he goes into a prostitute. Third mistake. Fourth mistake, he blames the prostitute. He blames Tamar when he finds out right. for pregnancy. Right. And finally, the fifth time around, he realizes he's the one who made the mistake. So Judah comes across looking really negative in comparison with Joseph. But that's not really enough, too, is it? So what? But then look at 39. When they're back in Egypt, what's this story about? Yeah. Yeah. It's about sex, too. So Joseph is in charge so of... wait, this was stuff you all had to translate? For no, Hebrew? we didn't get to translate. Oh, okay. I think maybe we translate 39, Potiphar. Okay, okay, We did not translate the Judah and Tamar story. We weren't allowed. So I got this image of you in the 19... When was this? Oh, the 1910s. The <laughs> 1970s. The 1970s at Cambridge, translating Potiphar and this story. Yeah, we don't translate the Judah-Tamar story. It doesn't uh, get in there. Okay. All the prostitution stuff... They didn't have us translate that. They left that out. Right, right. All these all these young Cambridge boys. Right. They left that out. But 39, I think, no, I don't think we translate. Yes, I think we translated 39. And in 39, Joseph takes over for Potiphar's household. Turns out he's handsome and successful, and Potiphar's wife wants to have sex with him. Joseph says, no, no, no. And finally, Potiphar's wife keeps pressing on him, and Joseph runs out of the house, and he leaves a garment behind. So Potiphar's wife says, I can now tell everybody that Joseph had sex with me, that basically he raped me. And she shows everyone the garment and says, see, Joseph left his garment behind after sexually abusing me. Then she shows it to her husband, who ends up throwing Joseph into prison. Joseph is completely innocent. 
He refused to have sexual relations with Potiphar's wife, but he's falsely accused. So, in 37, you have the traditional Sunday school Joseph. He has the dreams, they throw him into the pit, Joseph in the technicolor dream coat. And then, generally, the story skips to Egypt, and Joseph rises to power. But stuck in between Joseph being taken to Egypt by the Midianites and Joseph's rise to power, you have two stories about sex. Judah, Joseph's older brother, has wrongful sex. Joseph has no sex and is accused of it by Potiphar's wife, the people, and Potiphar himself, and is put into prison. So what you have is here a bridge from the 17-year-old Joseph to the adult Joseph in prison with two sex stories. It's as if the authors knew, you know, we've told an awfully long story here in Genesis. We need to spice it up with a couple sex stories. And they do. But the one shows that Judah, who gets off pretty scot-free, took advantage of his daughter-in-law. Joseph was taken advantage of, taken advantage of by his boss's wife, but he does not succumb. And so they create kind of a diptych, a sexual diptych, that shows that Joseph is really innocent. So even though we didn't like him in chapter 37, by the time chapter 40 rolls around, we appreciate his integrity. Okay, so, and we're wrapping up here for this Already? week, Jack. Oh my but gosh, you haven't said a word. No, no, it's okay. Sorry. I'm, I'm enthralled. No, they, they skip over those chapters for, I guess they don't want us reading those in church, the they lectionary don't. editors, right? They jump, you're right. But it, it is... It I does, think people would pay much more attention if they were in there, by it, the way. Yeah, maybe so. So, uh, yeah, maybe, right, we are, we are just like a good tale... Uh, we are meant to come to know Joseph in a holistic sense, and this early part of Joseph that we don't like uh, with his interaction with the brothers and all that mess and everything. Later, though, we get the other side of Joseph here that is wrongly accused, thrown in prison, and all the rest of it. And then we flip back, he rises to power, which is later on than we've got today. But but uh, we, yeah, we get a more robust picture of Joseph than not just one-dimensional, right? We get a full human-dimensional Joseph. And and biblical authors characteristically don't give you a lot of inside views of a person. They will say a person was righteous or blameless or something like that. But generally, the only way you can look at characterization is by comparing stories or listening to what they say. And in this case, the Judah and the Joseph sex stories, which are wedged between the young Joseph and the adult Joseph, tell us a lot about both the problem of primogenitor, the problem of the firstborns. What have we seen all throughout Genesis? The problem of the firstborn. Mm. We've seen it. Yeah. Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, uh, Isaac, Ishmael, uh, Perez and the other guy. And now we have another one. Judah is the firstborn, but he acts wrongly. Joseph, who's not the firstborn, acts rightly. Well, the Joseph story is a long saga story, really. Genesis stays with Joseph for a very long time, and that's where we will pick up next week, Jack. Thank you.